Hi, long time no talk. Welcome back to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. As you may have noticed, we haven't been putting out new episodes since we are taking a break for the summer, but we will be back when the term starts up again in the fall. But uh, we wanted to take some time to bring you two special episodes over the summer. Last semester, I emailed all the criminal law professors at HLS and asked them to tell me about some of the most compelling student work they've seen recently in the field. I also hit up my friends at the Harvard Law Review and some other student journals to see what was good that was coming out. Um, So over the next two episodes, I'm going to bring you four conversations with um, some of the students that were recommended about their recent work. Okay, so with that mouthful of an introduction out of the way, I'm going to give you a quick roadmap as to what we're going to do today. The second half of this episode is going to be a conversation with Ben Gifford, whom I'll introduce later, about why and how uh, prison crime has been excluded or omitted from cost-benefit analyses of incarceration up until now. But first, I'm going to talk to Annika Dunbar-Gronke. She's a rising 3L, and she wrote a note for the Harvard Law Review on a recent Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court case called Commonwealth v. Brangen. Brangen is widely recognized as a step in the right direction for bail reform. It talks about the substance and procedure that judges have to follow when setting bail. But Annika is going to talk about what else the the court could have done, and also what it means to have these reform-minded cases that focus on procedure because the problem with procedural uh, reform is that it still doesn't fix the problem of poor people needing to access the courts in order to access that justice. So here's my conversation with Annika. So maybe we could just start off with a quick description of the facts and the, the issue of the case. Yeah, sure. Um, and I will preface the facts in uh, like the facts of the case with just the idea that it doesn't even matter what the facts are because yeah. like there's absolutely nothing wrong with the question. But I think that I would like to like posit that it's not. It actually doesn't matter what anybody did. If you are eligible for bail, if you're eligible getting out, if if like a judge decides that you're eligible for like getting out of prison or like getting out of like where you're being detained, you should just be out. Like there's no. Right. So are you talking about when you, when you think about facts, are you thinking about like, what did Mr. Brangen, what is he accused of doing? Right. Well, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, like if they're relevant. Right. And so it, it is irrelevant, but like in this case, what did happen, Mr. Brangen was arrested for allegedly robbing a bank a few years ago. Um, and he had, there were like a number of different, um, points at which judges were considering his bail and, and, and then he, um, uh, the reason that they were considering like such a high bail, they were looking at like 20,000 cash or $200,000 in surety. But at the time he was on probation for another charge. Um, and so he was indicted for the armed robbery. Um, and then at the arraignment, a judge again, like set even higher bail at $50,000 cash or $500 surety. Um, and since most not not even Mr. Brangen, since most people are unable to pay that amount of money in order to um, be released. He was he was in custody for a whole year pending trial, um, even though you know some some like state official thought that 
it would be fine for him to be let out provided that he had that money um, or access to that kind of uh, that, that, that kind of wealth. Um, so he was convicted in 2015, um, but a judge ordered a new trial. So they, and then the Commonwealth appealed. And so the state was fighting about it. Um, and then, but in, in the course of that appeal, um, and yet another judge set $50,000 cash, $500,000 bail again. Um, and Mr. Brangan was trying to get bail reduced and that didn't work. And so he was in jail for like just awaiting some kind of trial or awaiting some kind of final decision about like where he was going to go for three years. And it was all, and at each point it was denied on his fourth petition. Um, the, the court let Mr. Brangen do an extraordinary, an extraordinary appeal, which got him to like the highest court in Massachusetts. Right. Um, and at that point, justice Hines, who's now off the, uh, off the court, this was, this was kind of her last hurrah. Um, or this opinion was her last hurrah. Um, and she was amazing. Um, but the Supreme judicial court, the highest court in Massachusetts, Massachusetts decided that it, it was a deprivation of Liberty for, um, for such excessive bail to have been set for somebody who obviously could not afford it. She put forth three rules for judges to follow, the first of which was that uh, judges cannot consider uh, um, a defendant's alleged dangerousness when setting bail. Um, the second is that judges have to provide written or orally recorded findings of fact and a statement of reason for their bail decision, so they have to like say why they're setting the bail. Um, it, and that's if a defendant appears to be indigent or does not, or otherwise does not have the financial resources to post the bail that is set. Um, and, and they must like give special attention to the reason that they have to give special attention to that is because the judge Hines or was suggesting or like was trying to put in a requirement that judges consider whether there would be de facto pretrial detention because pretrial detention is, you know, you have to do all of these procedural things as a judge in order to give somebody pretrial detention. You have to say that they're like particularly dangerous. You have to give an explanation. There are all of these like procedural barriers that keep that from happening. So the problem with, bail that you like with judges setting bail that they know people can't afford, which it leads to pretrial detention is that there is, there's a workaround, right? So, you know, you, the judges don't have to do all of these, go through all of these procedural barriers to, to, that are put in place to ensure that people like the people who are being charged with crimes have their liberty protected if judge can just say, Oh, well I'm setting bail and like set it at a level that they know somebody cannot afford and like know that they're going to stay inside. Like that's, it's the same thing, you know, it's, it's the same thing, different day, but there's so much less for a person who is being detained to kind of like use as a toehold challenge. Um, so the, the reason that I liked this decision or like wanted to write about this decision was because it's, you know, I think that often in in the law and in like legal circles, we're talking, especially if you're interested in like constitutional issues. What we have are like remedies, right? There's no, you have no rights without a remedy, and like 
in these kinds of cases, I would love for us to talk about how we have rights before we have to use the remedies, because so many of those remedies are not accessible to people. Um, like public defender services across the country are underfunded and like are, have stopped taking cases. That's what they did in they did in New Orleans. So it's like yeah. the resources are not there. So like whatever we can do in this system to stop to like prevent those, those deprivations, like those liberty deprivations from happening coming in the first to place. Yeah. from happening in the first place exactly um, is good. And so like so that's why I wanted to write about this. Yeah, so let's drop okay. down on that because I think that's a really interesting. Um, I, basically, I was surprised when I was first reading your paper and it was talking about Brangen. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be like a positive review of the case because it is really great that we're bringing, you know, that the court is doing something to address pretrial detention, like de, de facto pretrial detention through excessive bail." But mm-hmm. you're critical of the decision, um, and I was wondering if you could explain sort of what your critique of it is uh, and, and sort of w- and why you come at it from, from that angle. Of course. I, so, I mean, unfortunately I didn't have like all space to like also appraise the decision. Yeah. So I had to get to the critique pretty quickly because I do, I do believe that it's a good decision and it's, you know, it, it's the reform to me, this is a reform when there needs to be a transformation. And that doesn't mean that like a reform is fundamentally a bad thing. Um, I think that my intention in writing this piece from a critical standpoint was to encourage folks to like, take a step back and look at the full picture because yes, it like an additional procedural barrier for judges to keep people in jail for no reason, but for their lack of money, um, is a good thing. But I like my questions are were like how much of a barrier is that for judges? If they write these kinds of findings of fact all the time and there's no kind of like review process for these decisions and folks don't have like for the most part like don't have access to lawyers especially if they're indigent in the first place, like what kind of what are going what what how is this going to move the needle in terms of pretrial detention and ensuring that people are not, you know, like de- deprived of their rights, um, in the first place. And so, so can I, I just ask a quick yeah. clarifying question to, to make sure I understand. So basically now as it, as the system is post Brangen, judges who are already most of the time writing, uh, findings of fact when they're setting bail are basically now adding a sentence to it saying, and I've considered, the defendant's uh, like financial situation and and have deemed that this isn't you know excessive to the point that it's de facto um, detention and they're so like they're just throwing in this sentence and and then it basically is creating an a right or it's creating paperwork so that people can then appeal their bail decision is that kind of where the teeth is in this decision I think that that was the rationale behind the decision. I mean, okay. like, yes, that that's that's the, those are the theoretical teeth, right? And you, I think you you hit the nail on the head with just like explaining what it actually is, which is just a sentence to say like, this is why I've made my decision, and how quickly can that be done? Because I think that the value of procedural hurdles for you know for something like this are is that like there's a barrier 
it, it, it disincentivizes kind of frivolous use of a tool like this. And that tool being, you know, using bail to induce pretrial detention without having to go through the, the actual procedural hurdles required for pretrial detention. So if the, if the procedural hurdle to de facto pretrial detention through very high bail is not as high as the, as the barrier to get pretrial detention, then are people, are judges just going to keep doing the same thing and just have a, you know, like have like a control, a control C control V situation, or they're just going to have, is that just going to be on deck or that will there already be forms that are pre-filled out yeah. about the dangerousness of like whatever individual who robbed, who they believe robbed a bank or who they believe, you know, is charged with like a sex crime, like whatever, um, how, how much of a deterrent will it be? I mean, like we, you know, right now people are talking a lot about like deterrence or well, people that I don't particularly like are talking about deterrence, right? Like, so we're talking about like deterrence at the border and we're talking about, or like, yeah. The government is talking a lot about like justifying these like really horrible practices of like tearing children away from their parents and, and um, you know, like and putting people in, in jails for not not even having done anything wrong um, because they're like, oh, well, it's going to deter people from doing this. But like if at the end of the day, like nobody actually knows that it's happening, like, it's not going to provide much deterrence. So, like, if this decision didn't, like, get around, if people didn't know about this decision, and if it's not, if it doesn't, in, like, put in place an additional very strong requirement about what you need to do in order to get to the point of, like, de facto pretrial detention, it's still going to happen. Yeah. And so... It also yeah. seems like, to your point about deterrence more broadly, it it, it does... and. and and your earlier point about reform, reform versus transformation does feel like, well, maybe we should, instead of putting procedural hurdles in place to deter de facto um, detention through bail, through excessive bail, it's like maybe we should just cut this at the root and deal with bail for, for money bail for poor people directly. Absolutely. And, I, and it's, I think that's very... And to, to kind of finish the point about deterrence, we we often talk about deterrence in the context of, like, people who we believe have committed, like, crimes, but we, like, do not talk about deterrence when it comes to, like, curbing abuses of, like, among people who are in power in the system, so, like, judges or prosecutors or, or attorneys or anything like that. And so it's, like, it's astounding to me that we are, like, so... We bear down so hard on deterrence when it comes to people whose, like, rights we don't... Many people are not interested in respecting, but we, like, don't ever talk about that when it comes to prosecutors or judges. Um, so that's, again, another reason why I like this um, decision, because it focused on that. But um, your question about, like, really, like, hitting it at the root, like, absolutely. Like, what we should be talking about, and I think that, and this is one of the things that I, I was glad to be able to get to in the paper, was, like, looking at other decisions about bail around the country. Um, I think the Civil Rights Corps out of D.C. has been working with a number of, like, organizers and organizations on the ground in different places to bring litigation about bail. Yeah, there's Texas, there's the Fifth Circuit, there's Georgia, 
There's one from, there's a, a decision from New Mexico. I don't know if that was the Civil Rights Corps, but like there are all of these decisions in these different places where judges went further, right? Where, you know, in Harris County, there was a case called O'Donnell versus Harris County. Harris County, oh, Texas? Yeah, um, where the holding was that magistrates cannot, consistent with the federal constitution, set bail on a secured basis requiring upfront payment from indigent misdemeanor defendants otherwise eligible for release, thereby converting the inability to pay into an automatic order of detention without due process and in violation of the of equal protection. So constructively, that judge was just like, we're not doing this anymore until y'all figure it out. Like, we're just going to not be depriving people of their rights. And so the and so one of the reasons that I, you know, like, uh, wanted to get to the critique was to suggest that, like, judges can do more. And, I mean, maybe Judge Hines, I would love to talk to Judge Hines, you know, like, hear her explanation as to, like, why this is where she stopped. But, like, I do want to have a conversation about, like, how far judges can go with, with these kinds of decisions. So that kind of brings me to my last question, although I always say last question and then I have more questions, um, (laughs) be forewarned, but, uh, which is what motivated you to write this paper? So can you tell me a little bit about like the origin story of it? Like, did it come up in a class? Like, how did you, how did, how did this light bulb go off? And then, you know, this is a significant undertaking in addition to like all the other stuff you do at law school. So why... (laughs) Why did you want to write this paper? Well, so I... I'm a big fan of, like, the adage that... I mean, I don't even know if this is an adage, but, like, kind of, like, think glo- or think globally, act locally, or whatever that is. And so I think that it's really important for folks to, like, be involved where they are and, like, um, to be supportive of, like, community work and, like political organizing, any kind of work that they, you know, that they're drawn to, uh, where they are. And so I try, I try to do that. And so like taking a writing about a Massachusetts case, living in Massachusetts, um, and like trying to create tools for folks so that could be used in like Massachusetts court was important to me. Cause I think that the positionality of like writing something for like the Harvard law review is, is huge, right? Like there are really important theories. I'm not, not to say that like my, like anything that I write is going to be like a really important, like constitutional theory, but like there have been like really important things that have been used, important like ideas and, you know, theories that have come out of publications like the Harvard law review or like otherwise like, publications that are known for like procedure, whatever, like rigor or, or whatever it is, um, that have been used in like court opinions that, and when you, when people are writing opinions, when judges are writing opinions, when clerks are researching, they're looking for things to, to like guide that thinking. And if this could be, you know, some kind of support for some kind of opinion in the future or for some attorney who's like, no, let's end money bail altogether. Like if this could be an interpretation that lends credit to that idea that has been around forever, like people have been organizing around the idea of ending money bail and talking about it for decades. Um, and, or at least in its current iteration, people have been talking about it and especially like 
black women organizers in the South, like they've been working on this forever. Um, and so I just wanted to like do whatever I could to like, to, to support that. And, um, so when this decision came down, um, I was talking about it with a friend and, and he was like, Oh, well this, you know, this came down, it's really exciting. And so we, we talked about it and I was like, Oh, I'll think I, I think I'll write about it. Um, and so like having, you know, like friends around who are you know, like critical and excited about this kind of thing and like want to talk about it also was really awesome. So, um, that's how I came to that decision. And I also have had like family who have been incarcerated for like very long periods of time. And I like understand how damaging that can be. Um, to people. And so like, if there's anything that I can do to like ensure that that doesn't happen to people at jump, um, like whether you are being held pretrial or just being incarcerated generally, like the amount of time it's an abuse. Like there's, it's not the way that our prisons are run in this country and the way that our jails are run, um, especially in the South, but like, you know, my family is mostly in California. Like the, the things that they do and like the protections that exist are so scant and like so many horrible things can happen, um, at the hands of the state. And so if this can be, this can, if, if this can help move any court or any, you know, criminal legal system, state criminal legal system or otherwise, like take a step back from depriving people of their like right to liberty in the first place, like I would like to be a part of that. That's awesome. I, I, I like your point about having friends around you who are critical and thoughtful because I always love uh, hearing your perspective on everything. Um, uh, so thank you for taking the time. I know that you are like crazy busy and probably super tired, but I loved this and I'm really pumped that you wrote about this decision. Um, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you want to mention or talk about? Um, I will, in, in the spirit of the, of the acting locally, um, I will, you know, mention the Massachusetts bail fund who at the time that I was writing this, like actually ran out of money. Yeah. And it was like, it was like, I think they got refunded like quite quickly, you know, like for anybody who's interested in like ending money bail or like, uh, working with people who, who want to like build that community. Um, and like be supportive of this kind of work, um, like the Massachusetts bail fund and like the folks over at, um, families for justice is healing, um, you know, like are doing this work, doing this kind of like long, this long journey to abolition. And I say abolition to suggest that it's like imagining a world without prisons, imagining a world where we don't have to put people in cages in order for some people to feel safe. Um, either, you know, for either pretrial or generally, like there are people who are doing this work and like figuring out how to like get in where you fit in and support. If that means giving money to things like this, if that means like volunteering, if that means, um, you know, writing an article somewhere and like in, and like uplifting the work that's already happening, like encouraging folks to do that is, is where I would hope people would want to land after reading this, you know? Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Scott. It's so nice to talk to you, as always. All right. Well, I will talk to you soon. Have an awesome weekend. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. 
Okay, so next up I'm going to talk to Ben Gifford, who's a recent alum of Harvard Law School. He's currently an associate at a law firm and is about to go off to be a clerk. And we're going to talk about his paper on economic analyses vis-a-vis um, -vis cost-benefit analysis of incarceration and how and why folks have just not included the cost of prison crime in those analyses. So here's my conversation with Ben. Hi, Ben. How are you? Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Not bad. How's life? So where in the world are you? I'm in New York City. Oh, nice. Um, and you are... What are you doing? With, what are so you doing? I'm over Hale until the summer, and then I am going to be clerking for two years, also in New York City. Oh, nice. Um, okay, cool. Well, we'll get into it. Um, so why don't you just talk to me a little bit first about what the origin story of this idea was. Sure. So I was actually taking Crystal Yang's empirical criminal law seminar the spring of my 3L year, so this past spring. And it was a great course. Professor Yang is a great professor. And one of the topics that we covered was um, we did a lot of criminal justice system stuff. We did. But the area that really grasped me was this unit we did on the costs and benefits of incarceration. And we went through a number of different classic studies that quantified the cost of crime and that quantified the collateral effects of incarceration on youths and on adults. And one thing that really struck me as we did this unit, and particularly as I read, as we read a paper by a professor at Stanford named John Donahue, on the kind of total costs and benefits of incarceration was that all these analyses ignored the cost of crime that occurs inside prisons and jails. And so I asked Professor Yang about this. I said, you know, there must be some kind of big discussion of this in the literature. And it turned out it actually just was a, a pretty big oversight and uh, a pretty widespread oversight. So. I decided to look more into it, and that's kind of how I got started on the road to this paper. Well, it's very cool. Um, can you just explain for those of us who haven't haven't taken Professor Yang's class uh, how people generally do an economic analysis of incarceration and what those cost benefits look like? Yeah, definitely. So the benefits of incarceration are generally framed in terms of the amount of crime that's prevented in society by locking up the marginal prisoner. And the mechanisms through which crime prevention occurs really are twofold, incapacitation and deterrence. And so incapacitation being the amount of crime that that prisoner would have been committing that they're no longer committing because they're behind bars and not in society at large. And then deterrence being the amount of crime that is reduced because criminals or potential criminals see the threat of incarceration and are deterred from undertaking uh, illicit endeavors. So those are the benefits. That's Well, the benefit is itself also twofold. It's the amount of crime prevented and then the value of that crime to society. So let's say a generic co crime costs $10,000 to society for every crime that is either deterred or for which the potential offender is incapacitated society saves $10,000 on this analysis. So that's how the benefit side of the equation is quantified. Got it. The cost, 
uh, does that make sense or yeah is there- so they they sit they sort of sit on top of each other it's what's deterred and then what also is what the what's deterred on the part of a third party and then what is prevented by incarcerating someone who might commit another crime exactly okay. and then you take that total amount of crime that's prevented that's step one and then you quantify the cost of crime itself and so that amount of crime prevented time, the, the cost of crime to society is actually the benefit of incarceration. Got it. And so that's the benefit side of the equation, which as you kind of see, once you break it down, it actually has multiple components of, of its own. The cost side of the equation is at a high level, what you would expect the amount that it costs the state to operate and construct prisons and jails to actually build them, to pay staff, to pay for food and medical coverage for inmates, a whole host of direct costs that are pretty easily quantifiable. But then there are a number of costs that are less quantifiable. So what's the lost productivity of an inmate who would be contributing in some beneficial way to society, but is not, or is so to a lesser degree because that inmate is in prison and not working? Uh, And then you get into the really complicated collateral costs of incarceration on society broadly, not just for the inmate, because it could potentially decrease that person's job prospects going forward. It could increase recidivism going forward, but also it could have harms on their family, on their partner, on their kids, on their communities. And so all of those are costs that economists try to kind of greater or lesser degrees quantify when assessing the overall economics of incarceration. And you may not have an answer to this, but how confident are you that those, both on the cost and benefit side, like how confident are you that we're going to get to a number that's right? Those just seem, it, as you said, there's a lot goes in, that goes into it and the inputs seem so hard to quantify. Yeah, I think that that's, Right. I think that especially when you have something as politically charged as mass incarceration, and especially when there's so much wiggle room within each of your variables, I think that inevitably you're going to get a really wide range. And so there are some things that are easy to quantify. We know how much a state spends on prisons, or we know to some degree of confidence, but quantifying the collateral harms on communities is incredibly difficult and is almost certainly systematically underestimated by economic analyses. And also, uh, you know, what's the, on the benefit side of the equation, when we talk about crime prevented, what's the value to society of a prevented murder, of a prevented rape, of a prevented aggravated assault? These are really difficult questions, really hard to quantify. We don't have a market in which we trade these things, and so their prices aren't readily revealed to us. And so, yeah, I think that, well, there definitely will always be a significant range. I think that that range still frames the debate and it still rules out certain options as bad options and raises or recommends other options as good options uh, in terms of criminal justice policy. And then also, furthermore, where my paper comes into it is I try to say, look, there's this really wide range that you get for the economics of incarceration in terms of how positive or negative, favorable or unfavorable it is, regardless of where you are in the spectrum, we really need to account for prison crime because it's systematically skewing our analyses, regardless of what our assumptions are. 
Got it. Yep. So that's great. So let's, because I strayed a little bit from the topic of your paper. So let's talk about what is missing because there's a huge chunk of data missing from those calculations. So what is the effect of omitting prison crimes from these cost-benefit analyses? Yeah, I think that there are a number of ways that you could frame the effect because on the one hand, I think a very intuitive way to frame the effect of prison crime and its inclusion or exclusion is in terms of actually the benefits of incarceration. So we talk about how much crime is prevented from putting somebody behind bars, either because we're deterring future criminals or preventing the actual inmate from committing crime. But we're really preventing them only from committing crime outside of prison to some degree, potentially a large degree, that crime is shifted from outside of prison to inside of prison. And so when we say that the benefits of incarcerating the marginal prisoner are X, because Y crime is prevented, that Y number is actually gross of any crime that's shifted from outside to inside of prison, either because that person is committing crimes inside of prison or because that person is the victim of crimes inside of prison. Inside of prison. And so I think that you could view it as affecting the benefit side of the equation. You could also look at the cost of incarceration and say, in addition to the lost productivity and the increased risk of disease and the other collateral harms that befall prisoners and their families, so too do prisoners experience this risk of victimization, which is a cost. Um, You know, I think that there are different methodological difficulties with doing it one way or the other, in particular with trying to quantify it in the benefit side of the equation. So the way that I've looked at it in my paper is by trying to include it in the cost side of the equation. And when you do that, it increases the cost of incarceration by up to 40%. So it's really substantial. If you did it, if you tried to recalculate the benefits of incarceration by saying not how much crime is prevented outside of prison when you incarcerate somebody, but what's the net amount of reduced crime when you incarcerate someone, I imagine that the benefits would reduce by a similar percentage. And so it just depends on exactly how you're framing your analysis. But in sum, it has a huge effect on the cost estimates of incarceration, like I said, as much as up to 40%. Interesting. And I think this is sort of implied from our conversation, but uh, why do you think that prison crime should be included? Sure. Yeah. I think that prison crime should be included for the the reasons that I basically discussed in my paper are that you need to accord standing to inmates in your cost-benefit analysis. And, And the concept of standing in the cost benefit analysis literature parallels that of standing in the law, which is basically a question of whose benefits and harms get to count in our economic analyses. So I think that when you look at the, actually from the starting point of a classical utilitarian, you would say, well, you count the harms that befall prisoners because they're private harms. And so then the burden shifts to the proponent of excluding prison crime from our analyses, and the onus is on them to offer justification for why we should exclude it. And so Mm -hmm. justifications that you do see where they are explored to some extent in 
the empirical, but more so the philosophical literature are either that it's part of the punishment that prisoners deserve or that were justified in inflicting on prisoners or that, and, and, and bound up in that is the idea that the person who creates a given risk, in this case, the risk of harm is better suited to bear the risk of harm. Uh, and then also there's just the kind of more commonsensical intuition that if we have to choose, it would be better all else being equal for harms to befall prisoners than to befall civilians. And so I kind of go through and I try to attack those two potential justifications. The first one is a classical eye for an eye justification, which is basically that it's part of the punishment and they deserve it because they've wronged society. And so we feel in some sense that they deserve the harm that comes to them. And you really are not justified in inflicting rape, torture, aggravated assault, whatever it is as punishment. And then the other prong of the argument is, well, sorry, can I just make sure I understand that? So because basically the sort of eye for an eye principle is not something that we would tolerate as punishment, basically that's sort of implicit in not counting it um, for purposes of measuring the costs of incarceration. Is that right? Like, so if it's not something, if it's not a principle that we accept um, or that we want for punishment, it's also not something it's also something that should be counted. Is that right? Well, I think that, yeah, more or less that's right. I, I think that... You can say no, it's not right. <laughs> I think that that is right. I think that basically the way that I frame it is you start with a baseline presumption that you include private harms in your cost-benefit analysis. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to exclude those harms, then you need to offer some sort of justification. Got it. A moral yeah. justification. So the relevant moral justifications appear to be, and again, I kind of have to parse these from the literature since people aren't so explicit about it, either on the one hand, it's part of the punishment and they deserve it. And so we're justified in inflicting it. Or on the other hand, well, at least it's better that we inflict it on them than we do on members of free society. Right. Okay. Yeah. I get, I, I think it's, I had sort of forgotten that we were talking in the, in the frame of sort of who gets standing, whose costs are counted, um, exactly. as opposed to a weighting of the cost. Cause it seems sort of implied to me that it would be caught. It would be, it would be counted. It would just be weighted differently if, yeah. So, right. So no, but that's actually, that gets to the second. So right. the, the two justifications potentially for excluding it are one that is, it is just kind of a, a good thing. Basically it is part of the punishment. It's justified. It's deserved. But then on the other, there's this potential fallback position that you have to maybe read into the literature, which is that, well, even if it's not okay, it's at least better that it happens to criminals than it does to civilians. And so I think there, I actually argue in the paper that that is incorrect, that it's not better that it is inflicted on criminals than on civilians. And my reasons for that kind of go into the conception of dessert and the premises that you would actually have to hold to be true um, in order to get to that conclusion, which I think imply a very 
peculiar conception of dessert, dessert that's unintuitive once you break it down and put it under the microscope. But even if it is true, and, and I do concede that it is more intuitive and more people seem to believe that it's better that these crimes will fall pr- prisoners than innocent people, it doesn't mean that you exclude your their harms or the cost of their victimization from your calculus altogether. Maybe you maybe you waited and then you get into a pretty uncomfortable discussion about, yeah. you know, how many prison murders are worth a murder on that side. But even if you say they're worth half as much, they're worth a third as much, you're still talking about an exclusion that affects the cost of incarceration by 15, 20%. So even if you concede that premise, which I don't, it doesn't meaningfully change the fact that the exclusion of the cost of prison crime is a significant distortion to economic analyses. All right. So have, do you have to go back to work or what's the life of an associate like on an yeah, average uh, Monday? I think that I'm probably going to work for another hour and a half and then I've got dinner plans. So nothing Pretty too solid. Rude. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> I'm going to work out, you know, but like a law student workout, it's going to be pathetic and, um, short. I can't say I miss Hemingway, but have fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's the worst place in the world. All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon. Have a great night. All right. Thanks so much, Kyle. I really appreciate you doing this. All right. Bye. All right. Well, you'll hear from us again next week. But in the meantime, thanks so much again to Annika and Ben and to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music.